0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. It's always better when there's applause in that interlude, isn't there? Yeah, welcome back, Finn. We're glad to have you. And uh, So I'm thinking a little bit about... So many things at once, and the state of the world and what's happening in our world and covid nineteen and safe at home, and now this emergence of uh, you know how we're sort of coming out of that in some ways and not in other ways, and the confusion sometimes that goes with that and and then we layer on top of that the the social unrest and the George Floyd situation and all of the pain that that opens up in our African American communities and and this is what I've I've been thinking about and recognizing through this week there's some expectation somehow that we're going to get it right that we're going to say the right thing we're going to get the words right we're going to get the activities right can can I just tell you right now I don't think that's ever going to happen I don't think that we as a church, me personally, uh, whoever is posting on social media, I, I don't think we're going to get it exactly right. I think there's always going to be something unsaid. There's always going to be something we didn't say quite right. And, and it burdens my heart because I, I hear a lot of talk about how we're going to change things. But, but at the heart of all of these issues... At the heart of racism, at the heart of injustice. It's not a social issue, it's a spiritual issue. When I come to a moment that I believe that every single human being on the face of the earth is a child of God and a person for whom I am responsible, that's a a core belief at the center of my soul that. That influences every word I speak where I stop trying to figure it all out and get all the right words packaged and and get all of my analytical processes lined up aren't you tired aren't you exhausted I I I just it's just point counterpoint point counterpoint point counterpoint at some point This is not about all of those opinions. It's not about statistics. It's not about analysis. It's about a condition of the heart. And my prayer is that beyond the words we speak, beyond the posts that we have to make, it turns out you you don't even get to be silent. Being silent is a statement. And so you have to speak. There have to be words formed. Ideas have to be brought together. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter how wonderful the words are if the heart's not right. And so if the heart is right, then can't there be tolerance for imperfect words, for words that don't get it quite right? That's my prayer. That's my hope. As I stand up here week after week and I have the responsibility to somehow convey something to you, I hope you'll look past the imperfection of the delivery, the imperfection of the words on the page, the imperfection of what gets spoken. I hope you'll look at the condition of the heart. I hope that underlying everything we do is this passionate belief that every human being on the face of this earth is a child of God and worthy of our attention, care, love, protection. I don't think that's controversial. I don't think that needs a lot of analysis. I don't think it needs a lot of debate. I don't know about you, but I like being in control. I like what it looks like and what it feels like to be in control. I like to have things in order. I like to know what's up ahead. I like to have deadlines. I wasn't always like this, but I have become like this. Not only do I like having deadlines, but I am most comfortable when I am weeks ahead of those deadlines. I get really anxious and sort of uncomfortable if I'm not, not only aware of all the deadlines, but I'm ahead of them. I don't like for them to be sneaking up on me. And even my deadlines are weeks and weeks ahead because I I don't know. I just I just like being in control. At least I like feeling like I've been in control. It turns out there's a lot of research going on, and maybe... You can identify with this need right now in our current situation. You can identify with this need to be in control. In an article by Liz Ryan called Five Habits of Controlling People, she begins to talk to us. Now, I realize we took a leap. We took a leap from talking about the desire and the need to be in control to now we're talking about controlling people, and I recognize those are two different things, right? They're two different things. So in this article, she writes these words, it's easy to recognize people around us who want to control us and other people. It's harder to recognize controlling behaviors of our own. What is a controlling person? It's someone who needs to have the people around them behave in certain ways and not in other ways. Anybody, is this resonating at all? The need to control is to have people around them behave in certain ways and not in other ways. Most of us have run into a situation where somebody tells us, no, don't do that. And we ask them, why not? And they say, I don't want you to. That's not the way it's done. Five habits of controlling people. Number one, they know what your problem is even before you tell them. So as you begin to share your heart, as you begin to talk about maybe what's going on with you, they fill in the blank. They jump right ahead. The author writes this, I used to have a friend who would do that. I was so overwhelmed by her that I wouldn't stop her to point out that the problem she had diagnosed wasn't my problem at all. She didn't want to hear that. What she wanted was for me to pull out a notepad and a pen and start taking notes. She desperately wanted to teach me. Controlling people love to tell you what your problem is before... They really understand it. Number two, they can't understand why anyone sees things differently than they do. Many people have the problem of being perspective limited, she writes. They can't see things any differently than they do. They can't even consider the possibility that thoughtful people could see things differently from them. It's good stuff. Number three, they get angry when you don't Follow their advice. Lots of people give advice. Lots of people, uh, you know, see people follow their advice or not follow their advice. We figure when we give advice, uh, that's how it works. But controlling people will follow up and they will ask you, Did you do what I told you? Did you do what I said? Number four, they have personal rules that they expect you to follow. Folks who need to control other people make up universal rules and they apply them to everybody. They don't care what you think about their rules. You'll be judged by your adherence to them either way. Number five, they don't see themselves as controlling. (laughs) You will run into controlling people. You can't avoid them. You can't avoid being a, but can you avoid being a controlling person yourself? You can try. You can watch out for these signs and you can humble yourself in the process. How'd you do? How'd you stack up against those characteristics? In a softer article, Seth Emerton on changingminds.org says, human beings have a very deep need to be in control. You'll like this article better, I think. In fact, he says that there is a reason that we have a need for control, that inherently we know that if we control our environment, then, then our opportunity for survival is far better that our own body chemistry actually tells us we need to be in control. And when we're not in control, our, flight, our fight mechanisms kick in. He suggests that there's a very basic needs that sort of push us into this desire for control. He names five of them. We need for a, We need a sense of certainty. We like control because it gives us a sense of certainty. Number two, we long to complete outstanding things so we don't have to worry about them. We like to have things that we can check off our list and we don't have to think about them anymore. Number three, we have a need to understand how things work and being in control helps us understand that there is a system and there is a symmetry and things make sense. Number four, we like to have the ability to predict what will happen and order and control help us do that. And number five, we want people including ourselves and our circumstances to be consistent. And so he says there's a, a very natural reason that we like to be in control most of us probably like that logic a little better finally there's an article entitled do you like being in control by sophie Persone, and let me just read to you what she says i think it's very profound control is a deeply ingrained behavior within us because it makes us feel safe when things happen to us and we don't feel in control we feel vulnerable and scared one of the best ways to describe it is that we want the power to influence and direct people's actions or the course of events, but especially believe that we are able to attain uh, but especially believe that we are able to obtain the outcome that we want. We like to control people and circumstances because it helps us feel we can get the outcome. But are we really in control or is it all an illusion? The truth is, we may at times have the perception of control, but that's all it is, a perception. We may feel that we are in control of other people our outcomes, but we're not. The only thing that we can influence in our own life and happiness is ourselves. Even then, we can't force things to be the way that we believe they should be. This just results in creating anxiety because we aren't open to what could, in fact, be better for us. So I just want us to think about what that looks like. She goes on in the article to say, when we give up control, it takes away a certain level of anxiety because we don't have to worry about everybody else and everything else that's going on. Wouldn't that be nice? Number two, it gives us a deeper meaning and sense of relief and creating a newfound kind of happiness. In other words, we can be present in the life we have instead of longing for one that does not yet exist. And finally, Number three, we can be true to ourselves. We can start to be who we are instead of trying to figure out how to control everything around us so that we might somehow be happy. I believe this new normal is teaching us in profound ways that we are not in control. The events of these last few weeks are reiterating for us how much we are not in control. And so I want to take you on a little journey this morning, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about Paul's controlling obsession. For Paul, there is a driving force at the center of his life. And the driving force is the center of his life, is that he wants to be okay. He he wants his life to be okay. He wants things to be right. He wants justice. He wants justice. Uh, everybody to worship God in the right way. He, he wants to feel forgiven. He wants to feel loved by God. He wants to feel appropriately connected to God. He, he, he wants to be healthy in his relationships. He, he wants to be exemplary in his life and behavior. And he's obsessive about this reality. In, in short, if you sort of analyze Paul's personality in his life, he, he wants to be good with God and good with the universe and good with everybody else. He he has very good motives underlying his obsessive, controlling behavior. He wants life to work. He he wants everything to be fair. He wants it all to work out. He wants it to be right. He, He wants it to be absolutely correct and right. And Paul has found a deep sense of comfort in his ability to control things. He's found a sort of comforting symmetry to life. He's he's decided that the way to be okay with God and the universe and himself and everybody else is to control everything, to to get absolutely everything right. And I wonder this morning how many of us would say, yeah, I, I kind of experience those emotions. I mean, I may not be as disciplined as Paul in making it all happen, but I... I want those same things. I want the world to be right. I want to be right. I want my family to be right. I want my relationships to be right. I don't want to feel any shame. I, I, I don't want to feel less than. I don't want to feel insecure. I want to be right with God and right with myself and right with the universe and right with everybody else. And I'm going to get everything right. I'm going to, that's going to be my goal. That's my vision. That's my hope. I'm going to reorganize and rethink that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read it to you. For it is we who are the circumcision, Philippians 3.3, 3, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, to the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling us what he once thought would give him a sense of control and a sense of peace and a sense of rightness, and he's telling us He was really, really, really good at it. Three things seem to be happening to Paul, and maybe these things sound a little familiar to you. Number one, he was committed to get everything right. He really wanted everything to work out. I I, I would guess if we did some sort of analysis, there's a deep emotion in us that says, I want to get it right. I want life to be right. I want my kids to not do that. I want them to do this. I want the politics of the world to be this and not that. I want the racial unrest in our culture to be fixed. I want it to all be fixed. I want it to be right. I want the economy to be right. I want the world to be right. I want to be right. I want to feel good about myself. I want to be right in here. I want to look in the mirror. I want to get up in the morning. I want to like myself I want to like the world I live in. I want to feel some peace and some happiness. I want the relationships to work. I want to be good with God and good with myself and good with the universe and good with everybody else. Paul experiences that reality. Number two, he had decided that in order for everything to be right, he would simply be in control of everything. He would simply get everything right. He would follow all of the rules. And he was good at it it fed his soul. It turned out that he was able to create a life around these processes, around these getting it right all the time, beating his body into submission so that it would do exactly what he needed it to do when he needed it to do it. It turns out there was a certain kind of ordered beauty about it, and he was drawn to it, and he was good at it, and he highlights that Circumcised on the eighth day. What he's basically saying is that my parents were law-abiders too, so they took me when I was eight days old, and, and they, they had me circumcised, and I've been following the law since, ever since. <laughs> That's really what he's highlighting. Of the people of Israel, he says, his family didn't mingle. The language here suggests that he had two parents of full Jewish descent. He's highlighting his heritage, his pedigree. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he's not just an Israelite, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only child of Rachel that was born in the promised land. Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. The only of the twelve brothers who was born in the promised land. The tribe of Benjamin becomes the elite. They become sort of the core uh, 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 of all of the tribes of Israel. It is out of the tribe of Benjamin that the very first king of Israel is drawn. His name is Saul, for whom... Paul was named. If you think about the the celebration of Purim, the celebration of Purim, this great Jewish holiday is a celebration of when Esther and Mordecai had the Jews delivered from uh, from the hand of the leaders. And when you find out and read the story, you find out that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin, these celebrations. When the kingdom split north and south, there was only one tribe that remained with Judah in the south. It was the tribe of Benjamin. And when the exile ended and people came home, it was the tribe of Benjamin and Judah that began to rebuild the nation from the ground up. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not just an Israelite. I'm not just a law abider circumcised on the eighth day. I have two Jewish parents and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm in the aristocracy of Judaism. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. And What he references here is uh, by the first century, the language of Hebrew has fallen out of existence. It, it, it's a dead language. It's no longer spoken. It's only spoken to a few in a few homes that have held on to the tradition. And he is speaking here of saying, we don't just speak the common language of Greek. In our house, we speak the ancient Hebrew. We are Hebrews of the Hebrews. We, we traffic in that stuff. We are getting it right. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There weren't very many Pharisees because it was such a rigorous life. But Paul not only became a Pharisee, he committed to it in a way that we are told that he excelled at being a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was at the very center of zeal. The rabbis measured your worth by your zeal. You could do everything else right, but if you didn't have some burning passion within you, then it didn't count. And Paul says, not only did I keep all the rules, but I had this burning zeal. So much so that I was willing to be the one that went and persecuted the church because I felt like they were heretical. They were stepping out against what Judaism was supposed to be. And finally, he says, under the law, and this is just such a startling phrase, under the law, I was blameless. You, you can't find a more controlling reality than that. In fact, if I were to say to you, most of us would say, you know, at some level, that's who I want to be. Oh, I don't want to be legalistic or anything, but if I really analyze my emotions, my life, my thoughts, here's the truth. I, I want to set up a whole structure in which I excel, where I get it right. I, I want to wake up in the morning on time, early. I want to get out my Bible and I want to have a holy glow that settles on me. I want to go downstairs and I want to eat a healthy breakfast and then I want to go for a five-mile run and do some exercises. I want my body to be fit, my mind to be fit, and my spirit to be fit. I'm never going to eat fast food again. I'm only going to eat, you know, whole grain, blah, 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 clean, blah, 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 kale, whatever. It's in us. It's in us. I, I want to look good. I want to get it right. I am want all my relationship. I, I, I want people to come down the stairs in the morning and everyone to greet one another and hug and, and smile and laugh. And I want us to all embrace one another and skip around the kitchen and, you know, dance into the living room. I want us to laugh and be joyful. I want the grandchildren to come over and when we say, please sit, they sit. We want everything to work. We don't want peeling paint. We don't want dirt on the car. We we don't want anything to be cracked or broken. We want everything to be ordered. And we spend energy. We spend energy in analysis. It makes us weary when things are not all right. And here's a person who says, I got everything right. I, I did it all. But it didn't help. And he confesses this as the third point. He found himself discouraged and overwhelmed and unfulfilled because all of that control and all of that effort at getting it right did not fix what was broken in him. It didn't fix what was going on at the center of his life. And so he came to a moment when he realizes that his desire for control and the desire to get it all right and the desire to follow the rules so that he could be right with God and the universe and himself and others, he realized it just wasn't working. And when he realized finally that it just wasn't working, he came to a moment of abandonment where his focus in his life changed. We're talking about a new normal, a focused new normal, and if you haven't learned in these last few weeks that you and I do not control our own lives, then, then, then maybe somehow you are able to dance faster than the rest of us. This is what he said. But whatever were gains to me, I now considered loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I considered everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all Things I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, so what he says is, listen, <laughs> I have, I have done it all. I have worked and manipulated and obsessed and thought and lived and, and, and abided by the rules and created structure and done everything inside and out that I know to do, but it didn't fix what was broken inside of me. I now consider all of that rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It just comes back to what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. That you and I are invited. And, and let's get really practical. Listen, we, we, we're busy posting and thinking and talking and analyzing and sharing our opinion and debating. We do it politically. We do it socially. We do it spiritually. And at some point, Paul says, stop it. Stop living in this analytical world in which you think that somehow building knowledge and building understanding and, and, and that there's somehow you're going to get it all right and then magically nirvana is going to happen and this utopian society is going to go. No, no. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pray that His kingdom comes and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not over here in the analysis. It's not over here in the statistics. It's not over here in the arguing. It's over here. In surrendering and letting go. And 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 finally, you know, Barclay as he translates this passage, he says, Paul comes to a moment where he says, I have abandoned it. I, I just abandoned it. I just stopped it. I just looked at it and said, I'm not doing it anymore. It didn't get me anywhere. And I got it right. But it didn't soothe my soul. It didn't help me be human. It didn't give me grace for my fellow human being. It didn't somehow change my heart. It was all external. It was all something I dressed up in, and I consider it garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And then he says, not that I have already obtained of this, or I've already accomplished it, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on to take hold of, of the prize, listen to the language, to take hold of the prize for which Christ took hold of me. I I, I have put the past, the brokenness, the analysis, the attitude, the anger, the distress, the fear, I have put it behind me. And, And what I'm doing, not that I've made it, But I keep turning my back on all of that control and analysis, and I keep reaching for it to take hold of the prize for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And that is that we may be one as the Father is one, that I may live in this place of oneness with God, where I love God with all my heart and my neighbor as myself so that the kingdom of God might fully come and be present in my home, in my family, in my life, in my inner world, that I might truly be good with God. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness from Christ who gives it to me as a free gift. This morning as we come to a close of this service, what well, my prayer is is that we would somehow gather around this idea. Listen, I, I know that you're analyzing. I, I know that you're, you're trying to get it right. I, I, I feel it. I'm there too. I'm trying to say it right. I'm trying to get it right. I'm trying to write the right words. I'm trying to put out the right videos with the right heart. But what I really believe is that Somehow my calling is not to figure it all out. It's not to get it all cadenced correctly or spoken correctly or to attend the right social events or to say it in the right way. The intent is that my heart becomes right with God, receiving a righteousness from Him and that I don't live in that space anymore, but I I reach forward. Let me give you just a closing analogy and... And then we're going to share our closing communion together. I don't know where this analogy came from. I think I thought it up one time in a counseling appointment, but I think it's important and I think it matters. If you imagine that you and I are on a ship and we are on a journey, and you got your own ship and you are are just, you know, going somewhere. And it feels like to me that so many of us are spending the greatest amount of our lives in the bottom of the ship killing rats. That that's what we've decided life is about, that the journey will be better if there are no rats in the bottom of the ship. And I think the gospel of Jesus Christ says there are times you got to kill a few rats, but don't spend your life below deck killing rats. Get up on the deck and look at where you're going. Have a vision. Go somewhere. Get excited. Don't look behind, look ahead. We can be something. We can become something. We can go somewhere. We're invited to pray and live the kingdom of God alive on earth. And what are we doing? We're killing rats. We're down below decks in the musty, stinky, mildewy bottoms of life, killing rats. I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to come with me up on the deck. In these days, as we we reach to our African-American brothers and sisters and, and sympathize and identify and reach into that community because we care, because we love them, because they're children of God just like us, there's no difference. And we reach, and we care, and we love, and we support And we do everything in our power to be the kingdom of God. Jesus invited us to a meal in order to institute this kingdom on earth. I'm going to invite you to gather your communion elements as I invite the band to come back and we prepare to close this service. I hope today as you talk as families, as you make your way, I I hope somehow you can remind one another. It feels like maybe we've Maybe we're killing rats right now instead of enjoying the fresh breeze up on the deck. Let's get back up on the deck. When Jesus instituted this moment, it was a part of the Passover meal, and He had taken the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, and He held it in front of them, and He said, From now on, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of Me, the cup of redemption. The cup that suggests that none of it is wasted that God doesn't just gloss over failure and weakness and hurt and brokenness and racism and injustice. and He doesn't just gloss it over. But He enters into it. And He promises that what was intended for evil, He would use for good. That He would teach and grow us in powerful ways. That He would redeem our situations and our circumstances. That just like the cross, that the pain becomes the the gateway, the portal through which we pass into this life of fulfillment and meaning. And it comes in a moment of confession. It comes in a moment in which we own up to our own failures, our own attitudes. And sometimes we, are, we recognize that there's racism overtly or covertly, but sometimes it's just pride. It's just pride. And we just, we don't have anything at stake. We count it all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. We just stop arguing and fighting. We just say, Lord, i humble myself. And I pray and I seek your face. And I turn from my wicked ways, whatever they might be. And I invite you to hear from heaven. And to forgive my sin. And please heal our land and so we prepare our hearts for this table you don't need to be a member of this church it's it's a feast for disciples for those that have confessed sin and received forgiveness and if you've never confessed sin and received forgiveness we're going to pray a prayer of confession together in a moment and I invite you to do it right in this moment and then we're going to bless the elements I, I imagine on this Sunday morning that some of us have a beautiful goblet that was carved in, out of olive wood from Bethlehem with a piece of matzah on the top. And, and some of us have Oreos and a plastic cup. And we're going to play for God to inhabit all of those elements. Because it's not about that. It's about this. It's about the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as our Savior. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of the word, for the power of the word, for the reality of the word. Would you remind us as a congregation, as people who are gathering right now on this live feed, that this is not like any other podcast. This is not like any other thing. We're not here to accumulate wisdom from human beings. We are here to hear from you. We've passed the boardrooms. We've passed the analysis. We've gone right into the CEO's office, the creator, the head person. And we are humbly bowing together. And we are asking to hear from heaven. Humbling ourselves, praying, seeking your face. Preparation for that reality, we confess to you our sins. We repent, we turn for things that we have done knowingly, for things we have done unknowingly, for the ways in which we have participated in some way and hurting those around us or disenfranchising them, we confess it to you, we take responsibility and we ask you to forgive and to cleanse us. And now we pray that you would also then inhabit us, that you would inhabit these elements and through them you would Apportion grace to each person as there is need. We dedicate these elements to you in all of their forms. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, Preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink. And remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. And now, God, I invite you. I invite you to lead us. I invite you to guide us. I invite you tonight as we gather for this prayer vigil to be present in us. We are gathering to see your kingdom come your will be done and so I pray that you would lead this congregation I pray that you would teach us I pray that you would draw us together as we all together seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness may it be so may it be so may it be so we pray it in Jesus name amen God bless you God bless you Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.